It's Under the Hood. Follow us on the gram at IGJHood and at ESPN underscore Chicago. This is Chicago's home for sports, ESPN 1000. Under the Hood with Jonathan Hood on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN Chicago app as we talk about the NFL draft. The Bears made their choices. What do you think? We turn to Matt Bowen, who covers the NFL for ESPN at ESPN.com, our senior writer, joins us here on ESPN 1000. Matt, as always, I appreciate your time. Thanks for coming on the show. Oh, thanks for having me, Jonathan. I want to get your thoughts about uh, Cole Komet. You know, the, the 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 conversation out there about Cole Komet is that there's nothing against Cole Komet, and as someone who watched him just run over my Bulldogs of Georgia, I know how strong that he is. But it's just the the balance of Cole Komet, it's a great pick. But why have Jimmy Graham on the roster too? Because I think they're different players. I really do. And look, I understand um, because of the depth chart uh, in terms of the amount of players they have at the tight end position right now on the Chicago Bears roster. Then you go out and get Jimmy Graham. Cole Komet is a different player. I mean, Jimmy Graham's at the end of his career. Jimmy Graham is not going to impact the pass game. And I, you and I have discussed before, I don't see the play speed with Jimmy Graham anymore. I just really don't. That's based on me watching him on film. I don't see that burst coming out of his cuts or the long speed down the field. And Cole Komet, I think he's your classic pro-style tight end. That's the best way I can describe him, Jonathan. He can put his hand on the ground and block on the edge. That's going to help the Bears' zone run game. You're going to get Komet at the edge. Gives you an extra gap in the run game. That's important for this football team. What he can do as a route runner in Matt Nagy's offense, pretty much the same route tree he ran in Notre Dame. He's going to run seams, stretch the seams. He's going to run deep corner routes. He's going to run the shallow crossers. He's going to run the stick routes underneath that can get you first downs on third and two to six. I think he's a complete player at the tight end position. 6'6", 262 pounds, 4'7", speed. And that's the other thing. He will rumble after the catch a little bit. What I mean by that, you better get your pads down in the secondary if you're going to bring him down. Mm-hmm. He's a big body at the point of attack. I think it's a good, solid pick because they're trying to build your football team. And right now, I think they don't have that key piece. And I think Cole Tomek can be that guy who's a complete tight end, blocking the run game, run the route through Matt Nagy wants and produce after the catch. Uh, when we were previewing the draft together, Matt, you were talking about Jalen Johnson, the corner from Utah, mm-hmm. and it ends up the Bears take him in the second round, 50th overall. You really liked him a lot. Where did you place uh, Johnson amongst some of the other corners that you like in this draft? Well, I, you know, you're exactly right, Jonathan. I really liked him. You know, I came out with I, I got, you know, my own top five, so to say, uh, last week. I had Johnson number four, right behind Jeff Gladney, who went – uh, to the Minnesota Vikings in the first round. Because this cornerback class, you really didn't know. After Jeff Okuda and Henderson from Florida, those are the top two guys. But after that, we really didn't know. We saw some different movement. A.J. Terrell went early. Arnett from Ohio State. Then you saw Gladney. Uh, I, I thought Johnson belongs in that group. I thought he was a first-round corner. I really did. Uh, he's got length. He's got press man skills. He's a competitive corner that can find the football, can play both man and zone. He's got those man coverage traits that you want right now in the National Football League. He's got a smooth pedal that can transition on the ball. Not a burner down the field. I mean, he's a 4-5 guy. The 4-5 wins when you play a technique, when you know how to read route concepts. I think he's a very intelligent football player just based on his film and how he sees the field, how he creates angles to the ball, and he's a willing tackler. you got to have that, too. you got to have corners that are going to tackle, especially in the Chicago Bears defense. I thought that was an excellent pick. I, like I said, I, I looked at his film, Jonathan, and saw a first-round player. To get him in the second round, I think it's great value also improves your defense, and we know 
with Prince of Mukamura not in the roster anymore, that job is up for grabs. Mm-hmm. And if I'm a coach and I just drafted Jalen Johnson, I expect him to win that job. I really do. Now, Johnson, with a young corner, there's going to be ups and downs. You have to understand that. Everyone does. Fans and the Chicago Bears front office knows it. Their coaching staff knows it. But the only way to get better is to play. you got to get them on the field, let them play, let them go through the ups and downs. And you hope by midseason he's playing like a number two corner opposite Kyle Fuller. You know, Matt, as we talked to Matt Bowen with Jonathan Hood on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN Chicago app, you know, I, I said this even before the draft. I said because of the holes that uh, Ryan Pace has tried to plug here and throwing money in free agency and trying to plug some of those holes, I said whoever that uh, Matt gets, that, that Ryan gets in this draft, and it have, ends up being Komet and Johnson, uh, my thought is those guys are going to have to start and pay dividends right away uh, because mm-hmm. of that hole at the corner and the uh, hole at tight end. Just because you got ten tight ends in the uh, in the room doesn't mean right. you have one. But but now you have one in Komet. You got another veteran in Jimmy Graham. So I, I expect those guys to be able to start because you need to be able to say here's our draft picks. We're going to put them in a position to succeed. I, I think these two are are vital to Pace and his future. I think they're also vital to the season. I really believe that. You need to get better as a football team. You need to compete with Green Bay, Minnesota, and Detroit. And Detroit's going to have the healthy Matthew Stafford. You need to compete with those teams. You need a corner, first of all. You need a corner against Stafford, Kirk Cousins, and Aaron Rodgers. We understand that. Mm-hmm. But you also need to establish a stronger run game. This year. That, that is, you know, if I'm Matt Nagy, that's one of the top priorities. When, whenever we get to training camp and they put the pads on, I mean, that has to be a priority, to have a stronger run game. All right, not only to help your, your play action, your RPO concepts, but to have a more well-rounded offense, a more balanced offense. I think it was a major issue last year for this football team. And adding a tight end is a classic Y or on-the-line tight end who also has the ability to flex outside. You saw that. You brought it up. That's what he did against Georgia, too, flexing the formation and run seams. But really, a complete tight end that, in my opinion, should play valuable minutes this year and impact your offense. Matt, uh, I want to get your thoughts about the wide receiver room for the Bears because, mm-hmm. you know, based on what the Bears did not do, and again, there's criticism there because people felt in a very deep wide receiver draft, get in there in the first three, four, five rounds and get your someone. And so the Bears got uh, Darnell Mooney, the wide receiver from Tulane. But I'm wondering right. from you whether or not you are satisfied with the Bears receiving room with, with Robinson uh, and Anthony Miller and then – it's a question mark about Javon Wims. Wims is a straight-ahead runner that's more of a special teams right. guy to me, not a guy that can just break down a defense. And I see Ridley, and I, again, both guys from Georgia, I watched Ridley. Ridley uh, had some really nice plays that I really enjoyed with him as with the Bulldogs. He just needs to have time to find out whether he can get it done or not. So I'm wondering how you uh, assess the wide receiver room for the Bears not to look wide receiver in the first four rounds. Well, you know, you start with Allen Robinson. He's, he's a true number one. There's no question about Allen Robinson in terms of his route running, uh, his body control, his ability to set up defensive backs. He's a true number one wide receiver in, in the National Football League. After that, there's still some questions. There's no doubt. Mm-hmm. Anthony Miller has to stay healthy, first of all. He needs to be on the football field. He needs to make that jump. When's that jump coming? Okay, when is that jump going to come where he takes the next step as a wide receiver and develops the entire route tree? becomes more of a playmaker because that's why you draft him. That's why you draft him out of college because he has, you know, explosive play traits to his game. You need to see more of that. And I agree with you on Wims, Jonathan. I mean, he's a, he's a straight-line speed guy. 
He's your vertical boundary target. Now, does that have value in your offense? Of course it does. You need that player in your offense. With Ridley, again, I agree. Ridley was a good route runner at Georgia. Mm-hmm. Okay, he was a really good route runner at Georgia. And now you're hoping that in his second season, he becomes more of a consistent player in your wide receiver route tree because the traits are there to run routes. And we spent the entire draft process talking about guys that can run routes and get open. Ridley has some of those traits. You need to see it now as a pro. Uh, and, you know, and you, and you add the rookie, that's speed, okay? And the Bears did need some speed. Um, but, again, you're talking about a late-round rookie. He's going to have to find a role on special teams to stay in the team, to make the team, and also to impact the offense. It just, it just to me, that choice uh, by getting a receiver in, in round number five, I know, again, you're just trying to figure out the best players available that you can get, Matt, but I'm right. just I'm looking at it as saying, okay, you know, it's it's on Robinson and Miller to and Miller to stay healthy, and then try to find that third receiver. And I just think that in in this NFC North or just in the NFC in general, you've got to upgrade that. If you're not going to get it done in free agency, you got to get it done the draft early with proven guys. Now, I'm not going to say anything negative about uh, about Mooney from uh, from Tulane. I'm just saying that you've got to upgrade this for Trubisky, Foles, whoever the quarterback is. That's important in this league. No, it is. It's very important. And if you go back and look at uh, players the Bears had opportunity on, K.J. Hamler out of Penn State was available. K.J. Hamler went to the Denver Broncos. Uh, you know, he's got instant juice now from the slot. He can flat-out roll down the field. He's a deep ball guy, run deep overs, deep crossers, exposed to playability. Chase Claypool went to Notre Dame from Notre Dame, who went to Pittsburgh at pick number 49 overall. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, more of a raw prospect, uh, a little tightness. You're going to have to scheme him open in certain situations, but in terms of making contested catches down the field, uh, running the top of the vertical route tree, he can give you that. And then later in the second round, Denzel Mims from Baylor, who I thought was going to be Johnson either late one or early two, slid just a little bit. Uh, but Denzel Mims, uh, I think he's an, an ascending talent uh, once he gets to the National Football League and expands his route tree. You know, coming from that Baylor offense, more spread content. So, but when you get to the National Football League, that route tree starts to open up a little bit. He, he's a high-ceiling player. So those are some of the guys they passed on, Jonathan, to answer your question, because they decided to answer, you know, address the cornerback position, which I really think they needed to. And I'm sure if you'd ask them, they would say they had Cole Clement graded higher. And that's another position of need, too. But, Jonathan, look what this goes back to. Uh, we talked about this on Saturday night. It's, you know, the lack of, uh, of draft picks. That's what we're yeah. really talking about here. Okay, you don't have as many options. You have two second-round picks. You're not back on the clock to the fifth round. You're in a tough situation. But that goes back to how the Bears have managed these drafts the last couple of years under Ryan Pace with trading up for players and you know mortgaging future draft value because of it. Talk to Matt Bowen with Jonathan Hood on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN Chicago app. is Under the Hood on ESPN 1000. Follow at TweetJHood on Twitter. Under the Hood with Jonathan Hood on ESPN 1000. Chicago's home for sports. Jonathan Hood on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN Chicago app. Uh, Let me see if I can pin you on this, Matt. So... If you had your druthers and you had a choice in knowing that you need help at safety, the other side of, of, of Eddie Jackson, and again, it's 
if, you, if you're strong on one side of the safety position and you're not so sure on the other side on the weak safety, it's like, okay, that's fine with Deion Bush. He's a nice player, but Eddie Jackson is the strength mm-hmm. of the safety position. So if you had your brothers, Jalen Johnson or Delpit from LSU, who would you choose? I think you have to address the, the cornerback position first. I really okay. do. You know, you know, I, but I mean, you, I really but you, do. But, but Delpit's the better player, is he not? I mean, he's great. Well, Delpit. I mean, Delpit has all the traits you want, uh, you know, for a modern-day safety. Anton Winfield, too, who went pick number 45 to Tampa. That mm-hmm. was available, too. I had Winfield graded a little higher than Delpit because of his tape last year. You know, Winfield uh, had, what, seven picks in the Big Ten Conference. Uh, great ball skills, a versatile talent. They're helping on special teams. Delpit's tape wasn't, uh, you know, the best way to say it, Jonathan, I didn't think that Delpit played with the same sense of urgency that he did in 2018. You go back to the 2018 tape on, on Grant Delpit, he looks like a top 20 pick. That's exactly what he looks like. Had an injury in 2019, didn't play with that sense of urgency, I thought, so he slid a little bit. But in terms of the traits and projecting him for the National Football League, if you get the player from 2018, which we know he can do because he's already put it on tape, yeah, he can do a lot, especially in the Bears' defensive scheme, that split safety looks, roll him down in the box, he can help you in sub-packages. I think he's be a real good pro. Matt Bowen from ESPN and ESPN.com with Jonathan Hood on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN Chicago app. Uh, Matt, I really liked the Vikings draft. Actually, it might be one of my favorite drafts uh, for 2020. Well, what stands out most about the pickup of Jefferson off uh, the left tackle, uh, uh, Ezra Cleveland? What stands out about most about what Zimmer uh, and Spielman did with the Vikings? Well, you start with their top pick in Justin Jefferson. I didn't think he was going to be there. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I thought he was going to Philadelphia at 21. But Philadelphia takes Jalen Rieger, okay, because he fits their offensive scheme as well, explosive play traits. Jefferson, I think, is a very high floor in the National Football League. He can be a volume target for you. Caught 100 passes out of the slot last season, okay, and, and at LSU. And understand this about LSU. They run a pro offense. Now it's a little bit more wide open because they go more empty. It's a college game and wider hash marks. We understand all that. Uh, tighter formations, reduced sets in the National Football League right now. But in terms of the route tree, it's been very similar, very similar. And what he can do running routes out of the slot, can get down the field, has enough straight line speed to get down the field. Very solid pick. I think you have to look at the cornerbacks they took. You know, Jeff Gladney. Uh, we just talked about Jalen Johnson. I love Jeff Gladney out of DCU. I mean, that guy competes now. He reminds me of Alexander, cornerback from the Green Bay Packers, in terms of his competitive play style. And then they come back later and get Cam Dance out of Mississippi State, who slid a little bit because he didn't run a good time uh, at, the, at the combine in Indianapolis. But throwing the tape against SEC competition, he will compete. He can make plays in the ball. He's a good in zone corner. Both those guys fit Coach Zimmer's scheme. And then with Cleveland, I mean, that's your future at left tackle. You know, another ascending player in terms of his footwork, his ability to play on the edge. Mirror pass rushers off the edge, and I think he's going to fit their scheme as a as a blocker in the zone run game. Uh, the uh, the Packers are very interesting as well. You know, I can understand how Aaron Rodgers would tell several people that, hey, you know, we haven't had a skill position player in the draft in fifteen years, right. and he's and then Rodgers wakes up and sees that Jordan Love is in the quarterback room with him. It's uh, the the Love choice is interesting, but I, does Rodgers have a point in that? Hey, you know, can I get a receiver? Can I get a few difference makers that can help us increase our chances to win the NFC? Well, I'm sure he does because I I was surprised just like everyone else at one that they didn't take a wide receiver early and two that they traded up to get a quarterback. 
No, I said it's on Jordan Love. Uh, he strengthens your football team, first thing, because he improves the depth chart behind Aaron Rodgers. And the draft is always about strengthening your football team, especially for a team like the Green Bay Packers, and building for the future. Jordan Love is all the natural traits you want at the quarterback position, all of them. And now in the National Football League, he needs to be coached. He needs to be coached extremely hard because he needs to clean up a lot of errors in his games, too, in terms of reading underneath linebackers, improving his accuracy, the decision-making you make as a pro. But in terms of the traits, and that's what the draft is about, he's got plus arm talent. He's got mobility. He can make second reaction plays. He can throw on the move. And he can drive the ball at all three levels of the field. Everything you want in a first-round quarterback. But not getting a wide receiver, I mean, that is the discussion point here. Mm-hmm. Because you go into the draft, that is one of their major needs. Let me ask you this, Jonathan. Look at the draft. A.J. Dillon, uh, Boston College. Mm-hmm. Downhill, power runner between the tackles. Okay, old school traits. The draft's another tight end out of Cincinnati. You can play off the ball, too, as an H-back. Maybe you can play some fullback. And they take an inside linebacker. And then what do they do next? They take three offensive linemen. My question here is... What is Green Bay trying to build offensively? Because based on their draft picks, based on the coaching tree Matt LaFleur came from, I think they're gradually shifting to an offensive philosophy that is very similar to the San Francisco 49ers. I really believe that. Where you have multiple tight ends to play on the field at the same time. Where you are a downhill power running team or a zone running team with a lead blocker where you really focus on play action to open up throwing windows in the middle of the field. You're a much more balanced offense, even run heavy at times. That's what this draft tells me and how they're starting to build their offense moving forward. It's, a, it's an interesting philosophy. I just uh, you got to make sure that you have that veteran talent, though. Uh, at least at least one. I mean, there's nothing against Devontae Adams. I'm just saying like they – but it just – to, to me, utilizing the tight end is exactly the blueprint that San Francisco had. The running game, the running game's not dead, folks. I know that, I know that we want to bury it like it's the fullback, but the running the running game still is viable. Uh, and so, it, it's very much. I agree it, with you. It, very it's, much. It, it's just that's why I just the running the running backs that fell when they fell. I just kind of shook my head. I said, you know, there's a number of these running backs I watched on Saturdays are versatile enough to catch the ball in the in the uh, in the backfield and give you run after the catch. They can do a lot mm-hmm. of different things, and, and it's, it's it's funny how some evaluators still look at it as, well, we don't need this guy to um, to run between the tackles. We we need to get it in the air. Okay, you, you, the running back still matters to me in the NFL, and we and a perfect example of it is what we saw. I don't know the Super Bowl. <laughs> That's a perfect yeah. example, right? Well, it also, I mean, <clears throat> the running game is so valuable in my opinion. Uh, you know, December January, <laughs> that's what it is. Uh, I agree 100%. You, you need to run a football. And I understand you want to throw it. This is more of a passing league. I get all that. I completely understand. That's how, that is that has dramatically influenced how teams draft defensively now, especially at the safety position. Look for guys with multiple traits, almost multidimensional players who can play in the post, who can cover tight ends, cover in the slot. And they want players like that in terms of their skill set. But in January and December when it gets cold, and the team is running football down the hill consistently and controlling the line of scrimmage. And that's really what it's about, Jonathan. Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, all this stuff we talk about, it's still a line of scrimmage game, right? It's a question. You don't win up front. I don't care if we're talking about Friday nights, Jonathan. You're not winning anything. You're not. And the ability to control the line of scrimmage and to physically take over games in the fourth quarter later in the season will always matter. 
Lastly, did you uh, did you like what the Lions did? We talk about running backs. DeAndre Swift is a special guy out of out of uh, Georgia. Okuda at the at one of the corners. Did you like what they were able to provide? I did. Uh, one, you know, outside of the New England Patriots, the Detroit Lions played the most man coverage in the National Football League last year. That's what they are. They're going to play single high safety in the middle field. They're going to play man coverage. Now, one of the reasons they struggled last year is they played all that man coverage and they didn't get pressure on the quarterback. They had Desmond Trufant, who still got man coverage traits, veteran free agent signing out of Atlanta. And they draft Jeffrey Okuda, who, to me, was the clear number one cornerback in this class. The footwork, the hips, the eyes, the short area speed. Those are the traits you look for in a man coverage corner. He's got all of that. And DeAndre Swift, I'm with you. I thought DeAndre Swift was the top running back in this class. I thought he was underutilized at Georgia, too. I really believe that. I think his talent will take off in a pro offense where he can run outside zone, where he can find daylight as a runner to get downhill with speed. He's got the ability to shake people at the second level. Plus, in the passing game, you can see him on screens. I think he can flush in the backfield more in the National Football League and just run simple under routes, whether going to the flat or running an angle route. And I expect by midseason, he's going to be the number one in Detroit. And that's why you drafted where they did. But those two picks, you look at the top of the draft for the Detroit Lions, they fill needs. They are scheme-specific players, and that's how you should draft. Well, it was always uh, interesting just to be able to look through the draft, how it came across from a virtual reality standpoint. Uh, it was a very different draft, and uh, it was, it's quite interesting. And, and by the way, when you have a Mr. Irrelevant from an SEC school, it shows you how deep this draft was, right? <laughs> well, here's another name. Here's another name, Jonathan. I'm watching the seventh round of the draft, and I yeah. see K.J. Hill, the wide receiver from Ohio State. K.J. Hill's a good route runner, man. He really is. Now, does he have explosive traits of an early day two pick? No, he doesn't. But in terms of getting open and running a route tree that transitions to the National Football League, he has that. You usually don't see that in the seventh round of the draft. But, again, that tells you how deep the wide receiver position was in this class as well. Matt, I'm glad you spent some time with us. Thanks so much for coming in on the show as always. Uh, thank you, Jonathan. It is uh, Matt Bowen from ESPN and ESPN.com with us as we talk NFL Draft of the Bears with you right here on ESPN 1000. This is Under the Hood. Listen to me. Under the Hood podcasts are available now on the all-new ESPN Chicago app. Available on your device now. This is ESPN 1000. Chicago's home for sports. What do you got? This is your car. My car? I said a 10-second car, not a 10-minute car. Pop the hood. Pop the hood? Pop the hood. Tales from the Hood with Jonathan Hood on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN app. Here we go. Tales from the Hood right here on ESPN 1000. Jonathan Hood with you. Eric Ostrowski producing and directing the program. Well... (laughs) Last night, Sunday nights is so much fun now because we can be able to lock in on the Last Dance documentary. And we reviewed one and two, and now we look at three and four on Sunday. And Eric, I will start with Dennis Rodman, right? So Dennis Rodman, wild guy, went on a 48-hour sabbatical. Um, Carmen Electra, for those that don't remember how instrumental Carmen Electra was on pop culture... It was the same level as the Kardashians and maybe it's Paris Hilton in that regard, but it's just amazing the story that was told 
from the beginning, from the humble beginnings of Dennis Rodman, which is actually much longer than what was put out there in the documentary, but it was a lot of pain, a lot of issues he went through early in his life to be able to be a Hall of Famer and to be in the spotlight today. Yeah, I think that... uh... (laughs) So I, I would definitely suggest people check out the 30 for 30 on Rodman. It gives a lot more of the backstory. And I actually ended up watching it again this morning just because I was kind of satiated and ready for some more Rodman. Um, it gives more of a background on why he is the way he is. And uh, I, so we want to talk about that Vegas trip. I, it's wild to think that somebody would do it and it doesn't get talked about. But then I sat and I was thinking about it this morning again. LeBron did that, what, three years ago? Boom. Did he not leave for like two weeks because he was tired? That's right. Went to go work out with Dwayne Wade. You remember this, right? Went to Florida, went to go work out. That's right. Who wasn't on his team anymore. That's right. Yes. That's right. Just left the team to have a sabbatical and just to work out with Dwayne Wade. I mean, so weird, right? This never happens. But you can say, oh, it does happen because Rodman's the first example and LeBron's the second. I'm glad you brought that up because exactly, not quite the same. I mean, LeBron wasn't into like, you know, wild women and, and, you know, drinking openly on camera. It's a little different, but still the same idea of in the middle of the season, yeah, I got to step away for a little bit. Right. And and like to fill... Jackson to get that and then just be like, well, what if we give you 48? Like that just the the way that they handled Rodman is is crazy. Like it's so different. And and they understood what they had in him and they understood that they had to treat him with kids' gloves in a sense. Let's go back in time to the last dance uh, last night, episodes three and four. Let's hear about the Rodman wants a vacation story. My Scotty was out. Dennis was a model citizen. To a point where it was driving him. <laughs> so when Scotty came back, Dennis wanted to take a vacation. <laughs> I come to practice, Phil calls me and says, uh, look, you know, Dennis wants to tell you something. <laughs> and when Dennis wants to tell me something, I know it's not something that I want to hear. <laughs> so Dennis says, I need a vacation. And I look at Phil and say, Phil, what do you mean? Vacation? He says, he needs a vacation. He needs some time off to let loose. I say, look, Phil, let me tell you something, man. I'm not, if anybody needs a vacation, I need a vacation. <laughs> we look at Dennis and said, Dennis, what, what are you going to do? He says, well, I need to go to Vegas. <laughs> <laughs> Phil, you let this dude go to vacation, we're not going to see him. You let him go to Vegas, we definitely not going to see him. So De- he looks at Dennis and said, Dennis, well, can your vacation be like 48 hours? And Dennis is like, I got no other choice. I take whatever you can give me. I take the 48 hours. 48 hours. You got 48 hours, Dennis. And I'm looking at Phil like, you're going to get that dude back in 48 hours. I don't care what you say. He's done. Okay. 48 hours. She leaves that room, goes straight to the airport. Boom. They don't hear and see Dennis for 48 hours. <laughs> Bro, I remember that. I went to Vegas. <laughs> <laughs> Dennis was bizarre, but I think what made it work was Phil and Michael's understanding that to get the most out of him on the court, you had to give him some rope. And uh, they gave him a lot of rope. (laughs) It's just so great. Think about that. 
just think about it. Like, you know what? I just need to get my head straight. I need to be around Carmen Electra and um, Kamikazes and just have some fun. It's wild. Carmen Electra's still throwing her fastball, by the way. Yes. On the inside corner, strike one. Yes. <laughs> I, mean, just, I mean, as good as she looks as good as she did 29 years ago, Agreed. whatever that was. Agreed. So j- just to put a bow on Dennis Rodman, and it's, it's actually a lot more detail, but for the, um, for the sake of time, we've got to mention, Eric, that Dennis Rodman's work ethic was unmatched. The essence of working hard and playing hard, Mr. Kamikaze, Dennis Rodman. Because if you saw in the in the last dance, the dude pretty much came out in slides and socks and pajama pants and a t-shirt like he just rolled out of bed and came to practice. Right? That, that story MJ told about what's called the Indian run, which I remember actually doing that same exact drill in high school and everything like that. Where it was right when he got back from Vegas, and he's just reeking of booze, and then he does that, where he just sprints around four times, and no one on the team can catch him. See? Like, that that shows how Rodman is this guy that doesn't sleep, but then just plays his ass off on the court. You know what? Sandbagger. Like, he, like he comes across all sleepy and tired, and then all of a sudden, when the bell rings, when it's time to go to work, he goes to work. I mean, that's who he was. I, uh, Eric Bischoff told me that when he did his like little wrestling thing, because during this time, I don't know if this is part of the documentary, but Dennis Rodman was part of a wrestling angle um, with Hulk Hogan. And uh, didn't they do something with Carl Malone? Wasn't he a part Ma- of the... Malone, too. Malone was with Diamond Dallas Page. I remember like, that. Yeah, So, but the same thing. Rodman would just show up in you know sandals and... And and you know, like white socks and just like his pajama pants and he and he'd be like, Dennis, you don't look like you're ready to to learn this wrestling thing. He goes, Yeah, it's fine. Let's are we starting now? He goes, Yeah. And all of a sudden he just kicks into high gear. So when he has to do it, yeah, he, he does it. And then on top of that, dude, if you can't score in this in the league, college or pro, learn from Rodman on angles of rebounding. I've never that seen it explained that way. Fascinating. No, that was so fascinating to listen to. Like it makes me want to go back and watch like all right, as Larry Bird puts up this jumper, does he move to the spot where he thinks it's gonna like I was so fascinated on how he studies the spin on people's shot, the angles, if they're shooting from this elbow, it's usually going to bounce. It was, I thought it was really good insight. I just, I just, again, the guy who's studying, like, I have no shot. I can't shoot the basketball, but I can rebound it and get it to you, and I can give second chance opportunities for somebody. You know, I could do, and so he was one of the best rebounders that we've ever seen. So he made himself out of something instead of a bench guy initially with the Pistons. So just a great story on Dennis Rodman on who, how important he was to the Bulls, the Pistons, and the Spurs. Um, Phil Jackson. First of all, great coaching film, wild coaching film on Phil Jackson, right? I, was, I just want to thank the producers for digging up that old, art, you know, grainy film of Phil in the, in the short sleeve shirt, yelling at the officials, jumping onto the court. I've never in seen Puerto that demonstrative. Rico, right? I've Were never seen that before. Yes. Have you ever seen him no. demonstrative like that? Yeah. A, a clean-shaven Jackson <laughs> getting, getting it done. It's terrific. <laughs> he does not look like an NBA coach, even in today's. He still looks like a dude that's supposed to be in the 70s. Like, yeah. He is, like, his whole, the way... He accepted Rodman and like his whole like theory with the Indian reservation and how he's the guy that walks backwards. Like his whole the way he was is the only way that Rodman would have survived an extra four years in the league. You would have loved him as a coach. I bet I would. 
Yes. Seems yeah, like I, my I, kind of guy. Yeah, absolutely. So because he he had a relationship with players, not just the best players, but everyone down the the line on the roster, right? Phil really paid his dues by coaching in you know in Mexico in some in some godforsaken city where where they're you know burning buildings and yeah, going and, after and the officials. mayor shoots his, the mayor shot the ref like <laughs> that's a crazy story it's, I mean it's just just it's just true right it's just a thing um, so that was interesting I love his relationship with players um, and so the Doug Collins thought that was okay, my next question how big of news was that at the time i know where i was when i heard about it know that i was um was on stony island getting a haircut and was walking back back home to uh, my house in calumet heights at the time and uh it was on the channel 7 news that doug collins got fired and it was shocking to me as a as a young person watching they're just like Wait, Doug was supposed to be the coach to carry the Bulls, right? Now, I understand Doug was nervous. And he makes a cup of coffee nervous. You you, you could see that with the sweat pouring through his, yeah. his I mean, it was <laughs> he was always like that. He's like that now, right? But but the the news out of that that I did not know, and you saw that just like I did, was Doug was like, yeah, I knew in my second year that Phil was going to be the coach. Right, the whole Phil Jackson text winner relationship that Krause forced had to like had to have Collins sitting there just getting more and more bitter about the whole situation. I mean, Doug Doug's a brilliant college uh, a brilliant mind for basketball. I mean, Terry Boris told me that. He said I've never been around anyone that knew basketball, the game, all the angles of basketball more than Doug Collins, which is strong, right? That's a that's a for someone that's been around a lot of great college and pro coaches for Terry to say that. He said that on my podcast. And I I just thought that that's tr- tremendous, but th- that Doug's look into the camera like, oh, yeah, yeah, I know I'm being replaced. So see the parallel, Eric? This is just the Bulls' way, and hopefully with the new management, this changes, right? So in this documentary, what have we learned? We have learned that there are people in the front office of the Bulls that are already looking for the next head coach, and you hear the name on the record. We we go from Thibodeau to Fred Hoiberg, a year and a half left in in. Thibodeau's time, we heard about Fred Hoiberg. You're like, why is his name even being talked about? All of a sudden, he becomes a head coach, right? So, same thing with Doug Collins and Phil Jackson. Doug Collins says, oh, yeah, I knew I was going to be a coach. Now, Phil was an assistant. I didn't expect Phil to move, be, to move over. It was surprising. It surprised a lot of people in the newspapers during that time of like, wait, Phil Jackson, the guy with the mustache with his legs crossed, he's the, you're not going to get rid of everybody, but you're going to, but you're going to get rid of Doug? That was... An interesting story, but already, if you heard in the documentary, Jerry had already started grooming Phil because yep. Phil was so learned with the business. No, exactly. Like he, as soon as as Jerry discovered him, the first thing he did when he got in there was Jerry Krause's idol, apparently, is Tex Winter, and he's like, learn the triangle, and Doug Collins refused to. So I think that's where that started. Is is Phil just started studying the triangle, and that was exactly what Krause, how Krause wanted his team to be run. So it just. I mean, that's it's <laughs> it is interesting, and of course, 
pretty, like the highlight of the whole thing is the red cup wiggle. <laughs> I mean, to see the red cup wiggle from Jerry Krause. I mean, he's on the bus. They win the championship. And I was dying for it. I just, as soon as I saw it, I said, please, somebody give me a gif. Please. <laughs> it happened quick. By and the there way. was Big Cat right there. <laughs> Barstool Big Cat. And the, first, the, the thing that introduced, that's interesting to me about this, just go to it real quick. Eric, I just want you to just take it, just break it down frame by frame. It's just seven seconds of it that Big Cat put up. The the beginning of the Red Cup wiggle <laughs> is Kraus from the beginning, right? Moves the torso around, right? Got the Red Cup in the right hand. And he's just gyrating, moving around. And all of a sudden, he just breaks into this, this running man wiggle combo. <laughs> he's moving it around. It's like he's stumbling backwards. <laughs> He Look starts with, like, the Philly Fanatic belly move that right. he does. That's where he's starting with. That's hilarious. I love this so much for the rest of my life. I, I just watch that on repeat. I just, I just, I just watching Krause. <laughs> just, just, just watching Krause and the bulls in the background going, go Jerry, go Jerry. Oh, I love <laughs> at the end you see the subtitle. Someone just yells, sit down, Jerry. <laughs> <laughs> sit your, sit your ass down, Jerry. He just wants to be one of the boys so bad, <sighs> so bad. Just should I tell everybody my theory of what the bull should have done? I, I like it. Yeah, we were talking okay. about this before the show. This is good. Okay, so my theory on what the what should have done. I, okay, I can't look at this. I had to turn this. it off. I was I laughing just, to just, myself. I did. I had to turn it off. Krause. Just the 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 going backwards, the Philly Philly fanatic as you called it, moving the the belly around and just with the holding the cup. By the way, he's not spilling anything while he's doing that running man. That's just the oh god. Oh, I could be laughing about that until ten. <laughs> yes, and I mean ten o'clock, like in twenty thirty. <laughs> like so it's just, good. Oh. oh. It's so funny. So my theory on this is people you see, I'm sure you've seen this on social media too. Like, oh, the Bulls should have had like 10 championships in a row. They should have been able to stay together. I really believe that if Michael and Scotty and Horace and, and at that time we're talking about, you know, Rodman and Steve Kerr, those guys, if they just would have been able to just bring Jerry under their wing. Now I understand a lot of the, the feelings were broken, and, and it was really bad, you know, to, especially toward the end. But if they just would have took Jerry out a couple times for drinks, women, wine, song, just taking him out a couple times, he would have been able to extend the contracts to Phil and everybody else. It really feels like that's all he wanted. He yes. just wanted to be friends with these megastars so he could get recognized and get the bottle service and... And all, and get the girls to talk to him. Like he just seems like that guy his whole life that he's just dying to fit in. And if they would have just thrown him a bone or two, maybe, maybe. they all would have stuck together. Maybe. And I understand there was hey, look, the Pippin thing, there's a lot of feelings broken there. You know, Michael. Yeah, there's a lot of issues. But Eric, what if, right? What if Michael's like, you know what, Jerry? We're gonna we're out on the road here in Phoenix. Come on out with us. And I'm sure Jerry Blow, no, we got uh, paperwork to do. Uh, we got to concentrate on the Suns. Uh, we got and all that, right? And and Mike's like, no, just come out with us. We're gonna have a nice dinner. Now it's not a nice dinner. I'm sure it would be at some strip club, right? And, and I said this before. Jerry's the guy that's gonna fall in love with a stripper too. He just treats him so nicely. He's never been treated so well. She really likes him. Right? He's that guy. Uh, I really like the way she looks. 
oh my god i've never seen legs like that i mean just <laughs> just like just be that guy that all of a sudden he softens because the reason why that tickles me so much is because all i being around kraus myself and watching kraus he'd never smile dude Never smiled. Never looked like he was having a good time because he was always business. The short, the sh- you know, the um, the the, um, the the shirt and the tie, the suits, all that. I mean, he was just the ultimate, you know, general manager. Uh, but it, but never showed that side. And just to see that side of him enjoying the fruits of his labor with the team was fun. That it was, was fun to watch. It's hilarious. It was a treat. Absolutely. Let me see what else. Um, Cleveland was hard to get by for the Bulls, Eric. I think I might have told you this before. I didn't. So watching these, these highlights again, I had no idea Elo was that athletic. He was flying around out there. Well. And then and then I really loved. I know, right? It's the white guy thing. I know. <laughs> well. Uh, and then I, mean, I really, I think, I think I think Ron Harper would disagree with that's you. That's what I was just going to say. I love the Ron Harper being pissed <laughs> that they wouldn't let him guard at the, on that last possession. You realize how, how some of this stuff will never leave these guys. Never. I, I believe it. That's that's how hard competitors they are. It's just it's never. And then of course, the, the you know the chair on the top is the Detroit Pistons and the hatred of the to- Detroit Pistons. It's 2020 and it's still going on right now. The whole thing of Mike of the Pistons, the majority of the Pistons team, not like not like Dumars and Sally and those guys, but the majority of the team led by um, Bill Lambeer did not want to shake hands with the Bulls after the Bulls struggled. And again, as I mentioned. Uh, last week, it, it, the story of the Bulls getting six titles in eight years is a great story. But the journey, how difficult it was for Michael to get through this, as I mentioned, uh, you know, in previous shows here, talking about the Last Dance. Thank God it didn't happen in this era where someone's screaming about how Michael will never win a championship because he shoots the ball too much. Like, you know, it, it just. I think that this documentary will tell you this. It will tell you, Eric, that. It is not easy to win a championship, period. It, the, the idea that you can just roll the ball out there, oh, Russell Westbrook, oh, James Harden, oh, yeah, oh, you know, the, Paul George, all these guys are going to win championships, right? It's not, it, it's not automatic. Look what Michael had to go through going through Cleveland. Tough, tough Cleveland team with Brad Doherty, Elo, Mark Price, all those guys. To be able to get to Detroit where they had the Jordan rules, all that stuff. They were trying to beat his ass when he went to the, went to the cup. That was hard mentally to get through that and finally to break through to take on a, you know an, an older Laker team. Was, yeah, I want to make sure we underscore this. When the, when the Bulls won their first championship, that was Magic's last championship. Yep. <laughs> so that was yep. the end of their run. Mm-hmm. All right. So, but, so that was you know, tough. That's, I mean, there's a lot of fun stuff and stuff that you know, is brought up on social media and these talk shows now. But what's lost is... Man, it's it's not easy to win a championship, even for Michael Jordan. All right, so in my notes here, I just have: Did Pistons create Jordan? So, if like, if if he didn't have that giant mountain to climb of these guys that would just whoop his ass every game, and he couldn't get by him mm-hmm. year after year, would he have became this strong, absolute killer, angry, competitive person for the next what nine years? That's a good. It's a, it's a good point because. You saw after losing to them a couple times that they wanted to get into the weight room as soon as the season was over. 
something else you don't see today, right? Right. <laughs> like, yeah, absolutely. Not, not just one guy. I mean, the whole team. Yeah, they, exactly. They didn't. They didn't go get their golf reservations going. They they went to the gym and no one vacation that summer. That's I mean, pretty wild. I mean, it's Memorial Day weekend and they're like, "Yep, get right to the gym. Like, you're not going home. We're gonna f- figure this out all summer to try to win a championship, which was awesome." Um, so, of course, the Isaiah Thomas and uh, uh, Piston stuff is is really part of the storyline here. Here's Michael Jordan not buying the explanation from Isaiah Thomas. Hold on. La, la, la. Reading all my cuts. MJ not buying Bang. Isaiah's explanation. There you go. This is Isaiah. Talk about the walk-off. Well, I know it's all Whatever he says now, you know it wasn't his true actions then. You know, it's time enough to think about it. Or the reaction of the public that's kind of changed his perspective of it. Yeah. You can show me anything you want. There's no way you can convince me he was. Knowing what we know now and the aftermath of what took place, but during that period of time, that's just not how it was passed. Just, just wasn't. And you can go back and you can look at any of those old games or whatever. When you lost, you left the floor. All you got to do is you go back to us losing in game seven. I shook everybody's hand. Two years in a row, we shook their hands when they beat us. There was a certain respect to the game that we paid to them. That's sportsmanship. No matter how much it hurts, and believe me, it hurt. But they didn't have to shake our hands. We knew we whipped their ass already. We gotten past them, and that was the most. That's that, to me. That was better than you know. In some ways, winning a championship. Wow. So some strong stuff there. How come I, we don't get the edited version? I don't. Want, I want the non-bleep version next time. Can we get the ESPN version? The one that we did get cleared to play, which I'm surprised, was Horace Grant. Straight up bitches. <laughs> that's what they walked off like. <laughs> No, we just kick your ass. Go, go, go ahead and go. I love it. Yep. <laughs> the real Horace Grant right there, buddy. And that is Tales from the Hood right here on ESPN 1000. Changes in the Blackhawks and Bulls front offices. We discuss it next.